cold day in January, a day after the Maple Blues Awards, and I'm sitting here in a hotel room in Toronto with one of my favorite artists, Eric Bibb. How are you, Eric? Just great, Marco. Um, happy to be here. Haven't been in Toronto in a while, and I've got a gig in a, uh, well, tomorrow, in yeah. the Hughes Room. Looking forward to that, because I haven't played here in a while. It has been a while. It's yeah. probably been like seven years or something like that. Yeah, at least that, yeah. And uh, I'll be playing with Michael Jerome Brown, who I love working with. And um, yeah, it's just great to, to reconnect with uh, some of my Eastern Canadian pals. So how does it work that you don't come here for seven or eight years? I guess uh, there are competing offers that are hard to turn down in other parts of the world. Uh, it really comes down to uh, um, a team of uh, booking agents who I work with around the world um, basically vying for my time and, and uh, making offers that uh, uh, I'll just jump at or say, mm, maybe I'll wait. Uh, so. And do, do you worry about trying to make sure that you hit a certain country or city every so often? Because I don't know what it means that if mm. you haven't been here for seven years, if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Right. Well, that's an interesting point because, uh, for example, I have a, a wonderful agent in, um, in uh, the UK who really makes it a point to keep me unavailable for uh, three years, maybe two and a half years, two years at a, at a clip just so that the, um, the draw for, for a tour will be, uh, you know, um, high-powered and will fill halls and put bodies on seats because people have been um, longing to hear me. Right. <laughs> and that's, um, that's good. I'm not really a strategist, and uh, my people um, tend to think uh, globally, but it's also um, the bottom line. I need enough work um, at a certain level to keep my whole thing going. And um, I also don't want to stay away from home uh, too long uh, at a clip. That's mm. a really kind of interesting kind of balance, trying to find the way to work enough to uh, keep the whole thing rolling, but also spend enough time at home. That's the biggest challenge for me. Now, is there a formula or is there like a rule that you work with? <laughs> Rules that get broken all the time. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I say I don't want to be away from home more than three weeks at a time. The tours end up stretching when I come over to North America to five and six weeks, which mm -hmm. is a little little much because uh, of, you know, wanting to be around young children and all that kind of uh, important stuff. So um, it's, a, it's a challenge. Uh, I'd love to be able to get to a level, and perhaps uh, that'll happen um, in the near future, where I can pick and choose more and actually um, uh, stay home uh, more. I'd like to do more teaching, more writing. So have you done a lot of teaching? I do a, a yearly um, songwriting workshop on Gabriola, mm -hmm. which I really enjoy. Um, I'll be doing more of those kinds of things. I'm doing some more guitar-oriented workshops. Um, uh, teaching in general is something that I've done uh, throughout my career. Uh, I once was a, a music teacher in a, a school for immigrants, uh, a very immigrant, thick um, uh, neighborhood in Sweden where I had students from uh, basically 70 different countries. Wow. You know, their parents came from. And that was fascinating because um, I wrote songs with them and we performed together. We performed for Nelson Mandela and de Klerk when they uh, won the Nobel Prize. Um, Wow, that's yeah, we impressive. performed on the on the hall uh, on the floor of Parliament, Swedish Parliament, uh, 
Uh, I, w I love working with kids, but like I said, uh, my calling as a troubadour has claimed most of my time, and uh, I'm trying to find a way to balance that calling with uh, my other interests, you know. So, what do you get out of teaching? Well, I think for anybody who's a creative artist, um, part of the creative process involves uh, reviewing what you've learned and, very importantly, passing it on um, to other creative people who are uh, hopefully going to be inspired by uh, your, your experiences and take it to another level. Um, there's something about young musicians at a very early age that is so uh, just uh, illuminating. Um, you know, when you get to the point where you're trying to imitate somebody else, uh, there's already something lost, but there's a certain age uh, in young, young musicians where they are just uh, guileless and they are uh, naturally themselves and uniquely themselves. And I love uh, pointing that out to them and, and telling them to, to stick with that and not try to morph into some kind of generic, you know, uh, creativity, yeah. It's an interesting concept. I mean, uh, you come from a very creative family, and maybe you can talk a little bit about your musical mm. heritage, but um, how do you think it's just genetic, or do you think it's something that you actually... I mean, I, I, I have no idea. I think, uh, I've thought about it a lot. Uh, I think, for one thing, uh, that we basically choose our families as, um, as upsetting or as, as, as comforting as that thought is, <laughs> depending on where you're coming from and where you've been. But I think um, we find ourselves in situations, family situations, that are going to hopefully encourage, naturally encourage, our, our natural talents. Uh, I feel like I've been interested in music, not this life only, but <laughs> past lives as well. And I chose uh, very well when I chose my family this time because uh, my dad was a wonderful singer uh, who was passionate about music in general. Uh, on my mom's side, my, my uncle uh, was the famous John Lewis from the Modern Jazz Quartet. My godfather was my dad's hero, Paul Robeson. So needless to say, I was surrounded by creative people of a very high caliber from a very young age. Pete Seeger was a family friend, Odetta, Judy Collins, uh, Josh White, um, countless jazz musicians who were in my, my uncle's circle of friends. Um, so I was uh, encouraged just by being uh, where I was. I had so much musical nutrition in my background, um, so I'm not surprised that I ended up on the path that I'm on. Um, was there ever any doubt that you would follow this path, or did you ever think of doing anything else? I had other interests. Um, I like history, I like carpentry, <laughs> I like the fine arts, uh, but nothing, nothing grabbed me as... as um, ferociously as the music, you know. Uh, and um, I think there's a bit of the, the genetic uh, uh, influence. I think um, certain things are passed on genetically. It's a, mis it's a mystery, it really is. How much is um, uh, uh, environment and how much is uh, uh, 
genes, but somehow there's a, a, a nice interaction between the two. I think you can be talented from birth, come into this world with, uh, with uh, wonderful talents, and if they're not developed, um, they, uh, they fade. Mm -hmm. I think you, you basically need to uh, uh, nourish all of those God-given gifts continually, and uh, I've certainly had that kind of nutrition, you know. So when you were growing up and Pete Seeger was coming over or Odetta, mm -hmm. did you, I, I don't know if you could realize the significance of that, but was there any influence on that, on you uh, by seeing these people or did they ever? I'll give you an example. I mean, my, my twin sister and my younger sister are both very musical people, but they uh, did not pursue music as a profession as I did. They're educators and the women in my family tend to be involved in education more than than the men and several uh, of the the men folk have become entertainers and performers and artists and i think um it was pretty clear to my parents that um this was something that meant a lot to me at a very young age so while i would be hanging around the the, the conversations uh that my parents would have with the musician friends who would come over my sisters would wander off and do other things but mm -hmm. i would even as a youngster just eavesdrop, you know, just want to be around, um, just want to be around them. Yeah. Oh, that's a pretty cool guest to be around. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anybody, has anybody given you any advice or mm. any li life lessons that you've, that you Well, I do? got some advice from Bob Dylan uh, when I was 11 years old, and this is a one-off situation. I've never met Bob Dylan since. I've seen him in concert a time or two, but he actually came to my house uh, to a party that my parents had for my dad's colleagues. So two-thirds of Peter, Paul, and Mary came to that party. Um, uh, Bob Dylan showed up late after midnight on a snowy December evening, and um, I heard the commotion. I was already upstairs, uh, supposedly in bed, and um, I heard this uh, commotion, and I figured, oh, he's finally arrived. And I came downstairs in my pajamas and my robe, and. Um, and I saw this guy looking like the cover of Freewheeling, and it was him. And I was 11, and he was probably twice my age. And he was all the rage uh, in New York folk circles. Everybody was calling him Bob Dylan, or whatever. They couldn't pronounce his name. But everybody was just wild about him, and he had everybody in the palm of his hand. And um, I sidled up to him, and um, he seemed kind of aloof as he was uh, at that time, and maybe a little uh, uncomfortable actually with all of the attention. And maybe he just thought um, uh, the situation was just a little too uh, bourgeois for his Woody Guthrie jeans, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, so he decided he'd have a conversation with the 11 year old. And, and uh, he kind of ignored the adults for a while and, and just started talking to me. And I told him, I said, I play guitar too. And, um, and he said, among other things, uh, you know, keep it simple, forget all that fancy stuff. And in hindsight, I think he might have been referring to the, the real gentrification of folk music. I mean, his roots were, you know, Dust Bowl ballads from Woody Guthrie. And all of a sudden he's in the midst of people who um, are producing folk music for, for, for commercial purposes and uh, it probably got to the point where he was a little fed up with um, where it was all going mm -hmm. because uh, it really became um, a very polished kind of genre 
after a while. Uh, the, re the recordings uh, started to sound less like uh, field recordings and started to sound more like, uh, you know, Mitch Miller productions, you know. Um, but anyhow, that's what I think he meant. Forget all that fancy stuff. Um, stick to the to the roots. And um, that was good advice. I don't think I really was old enough to take it on board at that time in any meaningful way. But in in hindsight, I think it reverberated somehow. Tell me about the influence your father had. Did you appreciate who mm. he was when you were growing up? Absolutely. Um, we were so proud of my dad. You know, I didn't have kids in my, my friend's friendship circle who, whose parents were on the Ed Sullivan show, you mm -hmm. know. Um, I could go to school on a, on a Monday morning and say, did you see my dad on Ed Sullivan, you know? Uh, and that's a nationwide show that everybody saw, you know. And oh, my dad sure. was on Ed Sullivan's show at least nine times. Um, we were so proud of him. His voice was something that we just loved, you know, not the voice that yelled at us when we were out of line because that was too powerful and it really shook our rib cages, you know. He never was, was um, uh, you know, the kind of parent who was abusive physically, but if he was angry, his voice would just shake your timbers, you know. But he also had this sweet, uh, wonderful uh, honey baritone tenor um, that we just loved to hear on records or when he was rehearsing at home. Um, I hear his voice sometimes when I sing, you know, he's a, a trained singer uh, and I, I spent much less time studying the art of uh, singing, even though I sing a lot. But um, he was um, a singer who could sing uh, musical theater, folk songs. Um, he had a teacher once who said that he was destined for opera, you know. Um, but um, not only his voice, but um, his love of, um, of traditional music coming from Louisville, Kentucky, as he did, he was aware of a lot of uh, folk music from his childhood, um, whether they were spirituals, a lot of spirituals, um, work songs, that was all part of his uh, soundscape when he was young. Um, his hero was um, the great... Uh, uh, classical singer, uh, Roland Hayes, one of the first African-American singers of leader and art songs who traveled to Europe uh, already in the 20s, I think, 1920s. Um, so I heard so much wonderful music through my dad, uh, from Lead Belly to Villalobos, you know. Uh, it was wonderful. I can't, I can't imagine it was easy for your dad, being the time in, in history and all. Uh, um, <laughs> and all the changes that were going on. But was he encouraging to you to pursue this? Or how, how was he about you? Good question. My dad was not actively uh, encouraging me to follow in his footsteps, not at all. I think my parents, my mom being an educator, was really interested in me getting a university education. I went to Columbia for about uh, three good months before I'd had enough of it. Um, what did you go for? Oh, I was studying uh, psychology and Russian. Hmm. <laughs> um, but um, while my dad did not actively uh, push me in that direction, he certainly recognized my, um, my passion for it. And he made uh, his world available to me. He invited me to his rehearsals, um, recording sessions. Um, I think he was a little uh, 
cautious about really uh, encouraging me too actively because knowing the rigors of being a, a touring musician, um, I think he wasn't sure that that would be a good choice for me. I think he uh, already understood that it involved a lot of sacrifice and he wisely understood that that's a sacrifice that you have to choose. It's not something that uh, can be foisted on you. Mm -hmm. um, I never realized what being a, a musician, a working musician, entailed in terms of that kind of sacrifice when it comes to family life and that kind of thing until I really got into it myself. Nobody really prepared me for uh, what it would really involve. Because it's a little different from what your dad would have pursued or how mm -hmm. he pursued his career. Yeah, it is. Um, he was definitely on the road a lot uh, during the 60s um, when the folk boom was really at its height. He was traveling a lot. A lot of university uh, concerts, college concerts, there was a huge lucrative circuit available to him. Uh, at the point when he moved to Canada from New York, uh, just about the time that uh, I was deciding not to continue at Columbia, um, his managers were kind of nudging him in the way uh, of uh, uh, Las Vegas. You know, they mm -hmm. wanted, they thought that uh, the folk thing had kind of died down. Um, musical theater wasn't really um, opening its doors to, to people like my dad for the kind of roles that he wanted. And uh, his manager thought, yeah, Las Vegas would be good for you. And um, my dad thought differently. And he had discovered um, on tour the beautiful city of Vancouver and thought, um, I'd love to make this place my home. And he was so fortunate in that just at the moment when he had decided or was considering leaving New York, he ran into um, a man at the Russian Tea Room who uh, was the producer of uh, Jacques Brel is Alive in Paris, that musical. Um, and he, uh, he went up to him and he said, by the way, uh, I'm thinking of moving to Canada. Is there anybody who has the Canadian rights to Jacques Brel? And the man said, no. Um, and my dad said, can I have them? And, and uh, this man, Eric, said, uh, yeah, Leon, you can have the Canadian rights. And with that in his baggage, he uh, moved to Vancouver and partnered with uh, uh, Bill Millard uh, from the Arts Theater. Uh, and they produced uh, a hit show and my dad was one of the four performers that starred in Jacques Brel is Alive and Well in Paris. And that made his career wow. in Canada. So yeah. you, I, I had the privilege of working with both of you and your dad and, and shooting some video with the two mm -hmm. of you. What was it like to work with your dad? By the time I really started feeling confident about my own career, um, that was the moment when uh, opportunities came along for us to work together in concert and uh, happily also on records. So um, I felt like um, it was the most natural thing in the world to be my dad's producer. I'd had by that time some experience recording um, and I felt like I knew my dad's voice better than anybody in the whole world. And that was not an idle boast. It wasn't even a boast. It was just a fact. Mm -hmm. I'd grown up with my dad's voice uh, around me all the time. I'd been at his recording sessions. Um, I'd been at his rehearsals, his concerts. And I felt like artistically, uh, I really knew him and uh, knew how he sounded best. And so to finally be in a position to uh, 
make use of that uh, experience with him was just just great. He loved it. I loved it. Um, I wish we could have done more of it. We managed to uh, record two records together. One was called uh, A Family Affair, and the the uh, the second one was called um, Praising Peace, a tribute to Paul Robeson, who was his mentor and friend and my godfather. So it was um, it was wonderful. I just wish we could have done more. No, yeah. when when you're working with your dad and producing mm. him, is it a father-son relationship? Is it like how what happens at that point where you're telling your dad, "Let's do that one more time"? Right. It got a little testy at moments. <laughs> um, uh, that's for sure. My dad was really a, a kind of stubborn guy uh, who had his opinions, but um, fortunately, uh, he was. Um, aware that um, uh, my take on his his artistry was um, was was an accurate one he he understood that I he heard after several attempts at at, at, at uh, putting something down uh, he heard that uh, my opinion was something to to take seriously and he uh, he always he was a musician who loved, like all of us, to, to sound really good. He was a vain artist, as we all are. And, um, and he liked the results. He mm -hmm. really understood that I, I knew something about what I was talking about. And um, he wasn't as patient as I am in the studio because I've done a lot more recording than he. Um, having grown up in that era when you could actually do your own recordings at home and home studios proliferated and all that kind of stuff. I had a lot of experience recording. Um, and uh, him being more old school, he was the kind of artist who would record every few years in a major studio for a major record label. Our experience there was very different. So, um, But he understood that I really did have some, some expertise there, and he trusted me. And that was very nice because that brought out a new uh, dimension to our, our relationship. You know? Sure. Yeah, it did. It really did. Um, usually, it's the father, you know, who's um, encouraging the son to and, and bringing out the best. And here it was reversed. Here it was the, the the junior guy, you know, giving advice to the elder and having it work out and making uh, sure that the elder was shining. You know, yeah. Is it correct to assume that when you first started following the path of music, that it, you wanted to be a folk singer? Is that would that be correct to say that that's the route that you went? Yeah. And then somehow you kind of got introduced to the blues, is that? Yeah, I don't really separate them. I think because I grew up in the 60s, 50s, late 50s, 60s, um, at that time when blues as such, particularly the, the kind of southern rural blues that's uh, interesting to me, um, that was included under the umbrella of folk music. People like Big Bo Brunzi, Josh White, Reverend Gary Davis, those people were included in the folk scene. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't a specifically blues scene at that time. The divisions hadn't really become so pronounced. Um, at what point did that happen, do you know? Good question. It had a lot to do with just simple marketing. I think, unfortunately, the commercial part of music has always had a way of um, diminishing um, the kind of connectivity that, that exists naturally in music. Uh, genres merge and overlap. Um, it doesn't make uh, the people who are trying to sell product comfortable. 
they like clear-cut uh, uh, target uh, audiences, and they, they tend to uh, steer musicians into unnatural uh, pigeonholes. Mm -hmm. They uh, have that effect of uh, basically um, shearing off part of a repertoire in, in an artist's uh, uh, experience, you know, where they naturally sing a lot of different kinds of songs. A record company, especially in the old days, would say, well, we don't really want those spirituals in there. We want some gut bucket blues. Mm -hmm. um, and all of a sudden, a singer who is really a songster, who has a wide repertoire, coming from a time when they would have to please many different kinds of audiences, maybe even singing on the street, uh, all of a sudden they're kind of uh, narrowed down to one specific type of expression for commercial reasons. And um, that's a shame. I think um, those blurry lines between genres is a, a much more accurate picture of what real musicians do. They, they go where uh, they feel comfortable. And if there's a song that's a, a gospel tune and they're known as a blues singer, they want to sing that gospel song just as much. But um, they also have to make a living, so they have to cooperate with these commercial interests, you know. Have, were you affected by that? To a degree, I was a bit of a rebel from the start. I understood that my um, influences were pretty eclectic and that um, it would be unnatural for me, really unnatural, to claim myself uh, to be a, a blues singer as such exclusively. Um, I felt much more uh, uh, a part of a tribe of, of songsters whose repertoires included blues tunes, songs that they'd written, love songs, ballads, um, whatever, gospel songs, work songs. Um, that, of course, uh, made it difficult for me to um, easily get on board uh, with the commercial side of the business. I think that eclectic, eclectic kind of uh, approach made it difficult for me to uh, garner mainstream or, or uh, uh, established music contacts, you know, contacts to further my career. Uh, the, the first records that I made that got any attention uh, internationally were for a small Swedish audiophile label called Opus 3, uh, who had absolutely no agenda. They just liked what I did. They didn't try to steer me in any direction. Um, and I made a record that included some original tunes, some blues tunes, uh, bluesy tunes, um, uh, folk gospel tunes, and uh, it seemed to come along at the right time. And uh, all of a sudden, I started getting, you know, faxes from it was faxes in those days, from places like Australia, saying, you know, where have you been, you know? And my answer was, I've been living in Sweden trying to make a living, you know, and. Uh, I'm glad you like what I'm doing, and you know. You also have dabbled in a little bit of world music as well. Yes. And is that is that risky? I'm mean, knowing that the market. Hmm. I think I, I think your fans appreciate the fact that you, hmm. you do lots of different things. Hmm. But I still wonder if if you you decide to do an album of world music or do something mm -hmm. different, whether you worry about whether your fans will follow you on that journey. I think. Um, Pretty early on, I realized that um, I had to really be happy. If I was going to stay in this business uh, and have some kind of 
long-term career, it would involve me basically satisfying my myself first and the marketplace second. Um, I feel like I was um, sometimes grudgingly included in the blues um, circuit. Um, I think sometimes people hired me because I was an acoustic player and was maybe a good kind of um, in-between act between two loud bands, you know. However, if I'd had a loud band of my own, I think I probably would have made more progress in the industry uh, uh, sooner. Really? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think, you know, if you put bass and drums behind you and you're, uh, I've got a, um, uh, a lead guitar player or you play lead guitar in a way that's uh, a kind of uh, iconic sound that people associate with modern blues, I think my career would have looked a lot different. But um, I don't regret uh, going the way that I've gone. I followed uh, my heroes who were, you know, gals and guys who could just stand up with an acoustic instrument and perform something that moved people. It's a longer, slower haul, but um, uh, I'm happy for it. I'm really well, happy I don't, where I don't it's taken me. <laughs> if it's much my imagination, but I get the impression that you've kind of become more established in the blues world hmm. over the last few years and the yes. recognition you've gotten from the Blues Music Awards. Yes, I, I tell you, I'm so happy for uh, even the sometimes grudging inclusion because, um, let's face it, um, I could have just decided to be a kind of what's called a kind of singer-songwriter. I write a lot, so I could have... Um, taken a decision to not uh, focus on the kind of country blues roots that I love and just go the um, singer-songwriter route. And I think I would have had um, some success, but I think uh, I would have probably um, uh, not been uh, as well known now as I am. And I, I, I have the blues, uh, the passion of, of blues fans worldwide to thank for the exposure that I've had because let's face it there are blues festivals from Poland to Finland to you know Taiwan there's blues festivals everywhere and good blues players and people who love the music across the globe um, Africa Asia Europe um, and it's given me a chance to be included uh, on stages with famous people um, had I chosen to just simply be a so-called singer-songwriter, I don't think I would have had that kind of exposure. I wouldn't have met B.B. King and been on stage with people like Taj Mahal, with opening for Buddy Guy, opening for Bonnie Raitt, opening for Robert Cray. All of those opportunities came my way because I had enough blues in my repertoire to, to, um, to be called, you know. Did you ever think about picking up an electric guitar and doing a blues band thing? Um, that never interested me personally. I've worked with some wonderful uh, electric guitar players. Um, when I play an electric instrument, um, and I have a few electric guitars, it's basically what I do on an acoustic guitar. It's just a somewhat different sound, but the, the style of playing has not varied. I've never been interested in being a, a soloist or a lead guitar player as such. Um, I like that sound, and I, I hire people sometimes to bring that sound to my recordings, but it's never been a, a, a real interest for me as a guitar player. I started out playing um, 
as a young uh, budding guitar player, I had uh, a good teacher uh, in classical guitar. And I loved that repertoire, although I didn't want to pursue it. I, I really recognized how wonderful it was to use your fingers in the way that would create kind of a small mini orchestra out of the guitar. That was always my fascination, how you could get so much going on with one instrument. And if you could find a way to sing on top of that, that was really as good as it got for me. I thought mm -hmm. that was, yeah, that was the pinnacle. And the songwriting, because you write some great songs, and I get the feeling that most of the things that you write tend to lean more towards the positive, mm -hmm. inspirational message mm. as opposed to the negative. Tell right. me about the songwriting and, and the thought process you have. Mm. That kind of optimism that shines through the writing um, is just natural. I figured it's, it's not... Um, gonna work if I if I pretend to 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 live on the dark side of the moon when you know I don't um, I found that there was a fascination with this darker type of songwriting uh, and um, I often got criticized actually for being you know too sunny um, but there was no way I was going to try to pretend that I was you know into something else that I wasn't into um, and in the end that's paid off it's funny the the audience that it seems to speak to is, is an older audience. At least it seemed that way at first. Um, and now it seems like it's an older audience and it's also a younger audience. Um, I seem to miss the in-between who, who had um, some skepticism about my sunniness, you know. Uh, especially in blue circles, it's like, um, hey man, that's not really where it's at, is it? And the interesting thing was the people who were telling me that, I queried their their blues credentials and I said what do you know about blues life and you know I mean come on you have this cartoon image of of what a blues singer should be or a guy with no teeth who's you know uh, half in the bottle all the time you know that's a caricature that's not necessarily a, a reflection of certainly the professional blues people I've known um, they've included folks like that but that's not the the, the, the end of it all. I mean, the blues community um, includes people who, uh, you know, have university degrees, people who've, you know, plowed behind a mule. I mean, it's, it's a wide, mm -hmm. wide spectrum of people and experiences. Um, and I think the only thing that's really important is that it's truthful. I think, as a rule, blues music, for me, to have it be meaningful, it has to be honest. You can have a great voice and you can pretend that your voice is more rough than it is. You can try to convince people that you've lived, you know, in back alleys when in fact, you know, you've gone to Yale. But that doesn't work for me. I think that pretending aspect um, is an affront to the real people who uh, uh, brought this music as far as it's come in the world. And it's become a universal language with such appeal and I think one of the reasons it has such wide appeal is the founders of this music who put it on the map were people who were really just singing about their own experiences in real time. They were not pretending, trying to, to, to make it something it wasn't. Um, this is before it became hugely commercial and then things changed. But the roots of this music are, are honest people just telling you what they've been through. And that's what really, I think, touched people all over the world uh, and brought them on board with blues as a, as a genre, you know. 
as an artist, are you also, I mean, I would presume that you have a folk music following and you probably play folk music mm -hmm. festivals. Yes. So are you, I, I guess, are you accepted in that world as much as you are in the blues world? Um, yes, I would like to do, for one thing, I would love to do more folk festivals. I would love to do, as I do, I'd love to do more jazz festivals. Um, I find blues festivals, and I don't mean to, uh, to, to, you know, bite the hand that feeds me, but um, I think blues festivals can tend to be more of a, um, a lifestyle thing uh, as much as a musical thing. And I tend to, when I'm performing, like settings that really uh, raise the music up uh, in the production of it, you know, with, with great sound systems, uh, proper venues. I don't really like the blues festival side of things where it goes to a tent where you're competing with the sound of people stepping on plastic beer cups, you know. Mm -hmm. That to me is a, it's a fun day out, it's an outing. But as far as a, a, a way to present music, that's not my favorite gig, you know. I like a small theater where people listen because I don't like to be um, uh, bombastic in my approach. I don't want to compete for their attention with other things. I like to really be able to play uh, in a subtle way, in a dynamic way, and um, not be distracted by, you know, somebody hollering out, you know, uh, Freebird, you know, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's 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 a, but you know, as I say, the music business, you have to really take the uh, the wheat with the chaff. You have to really roll with it, and compromise sometimes. If you're going to be a diva and demand uh, an optimal performance situation every time, you're going to work a lot less. You yeah, know? but from where I sit, I look at you, and you have this international thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously you live in Europe, mm -hmm. which I would like to ask you about, but mm -hmm. you live in Europe, so you play all over Europe. You, you come to North America at least once, if not twice Two, a year. Yeah, twice, three and, times maybe. And and you, I presume, go to Australia and various mm -hmm. other places. And you, you have this following. You also have this thing that a lot of musicians would dream about, which is to be able to play in soft seat theaters mm -hmm. as well as festivals. Yes, I'm fortunate there. Um, as I say, you know, the, the circuits that I'm, working in often are art centers and that kind of thing. Um, this is not the kind of um, uh, money that you would make in, in uh, arena type situations or, or bigger venues uh, that, that rock groups uh, have access to. Um, but I agree with you. There are musicians who are on that circuit who I know are, um, uh, maybe the word's not envious, but they, they appreciate and would certainly like to uh, be able to do those kind of gigs too. Hmm. Um, I also think about all the blues musicians who are struggling their way through playing Clark gigs. Yeah. Yes, I, I, I totally get it. No, it's, it's, a, it's a blessed situation, you know. It's, um, but I'm not young uh, uh, like a lot of those guys who are working in those situations paying those kind of dues. I've done that. Um, I did that a lot in Sweden before I got a chance to work internationally. Uh, playing with blues bands, local blues bands, and competing, you know, for the attention of the of the audience. Um, it's a certain kind of um, uh, school that gives you some kind of uh, um, 
confidence, when you can conquer that kind of situation, uh, and then you find yourself in a soft seat theater, you really do have some authority because um, they're listening to you. Yeah, they're <laughs> listening, and you know that you've got them, and you've been other places, and you know what that's like. And so um, I'm fortunate. I, I think if I could make the kind of money that I'd like to be able to make, uh, spending as much time uh, away from home as I do, um, I would love to be able to play small theaters um, and make enough money to to really pick and choose those kind of cherry gigs. I'm not at that level. Um, I need to play larger venues, festivals that uh, garner a bigger fee. The smaller rooms are great, but um, unless you're going to charge an arm and a leg for the ticket and you're kind of alienating a large part of your fan base, um, you basically need to mix it up, you know. Mm -hmm. So I don't play the kind of rooms that I, I like to play all the time. I compromise and, and play other kinds of gigs. Festivals, I don't like festivals uh, from a musical point of view. I like it for the camaraderie. I like it because I can meet other artists. I like it for the exposure. Mm -hmm. uh, that's wonderful for an artist to all of a sudden be known by 2,000 new people. Um, but let's face it, um, musically, <coughs> it's a compromise because often you don't really have a proper sound check. Mm -hmm. This is what really kind of amazes me. Music is the commodity. You're selling music, but you're you're basically really compromising that product by having one band after another with a 10-minute, 15-minute changeover right. that involves basically plugging in. Do you hear yourself in the monitor? Yeah, that I do, but it's not really more than that. <laughs> And then you expect it to deliver your best and bring on new fans. I find that challenging. You know, I know you live in Europe. Um, I've been there, and I think it's it's every time I go to different parts, it's amazing to me. But mm. what is it about Europe that that grabbed you, and that's where you make your home? I first, my first experience with uh, traveling abroad was when I was twelve years old. Uh, my dad had a, a tour of um, the Soviet Union in 1964, August of 1964. So I had my 13th birthday, celebrated my 13th birthday with my twin sister in Kiev. Um, my dad had about 30 concerts in about as many days. It was an amazing experience. And prior to what was then the Soviet Union leg of the trip, we uh, traveled as a family, my mom and my two sisters and myself throughout Europe. We went to France, we went to Italy, went to England. We went to, um, well, we flew from Vienna to Moscow. Um, so my first experience was um, um, as a 12-year-old with, uh, you know, just wonder at this older world that was so different from America. Um, France was a revelation seeing people from all over the world, particularly African countries. Um, my exposure to uh, Africa had been minimal up to that point. Um, so uh, it was just uh, an eye-opening experience. And it must have really um, left me curious for more because uh, the next opportunity I had to travel to Europe was when I decided to, to ditch my studies at Columbia and take my guitar and travel to Paris. And I um, was fortunate in that I uh, 
hooked up with uh, the wonderful Mickey Baker, a jazz guitarist, American jazz guitarist, blues jazz guitarist, who had had some success as a studio musician playing with people like Ray Charles and uh, recording prolifically before he decided to move to Europe. He had a hit with a pop group that he once put together, a duo called Mickey and Sylvia, and they had that hit called Love is Strange. He made some money. He relocated to Paris, and um, when I met him, he uh, took me under his wing and recognized that I was uh, a bit, you know, out of my depth and and kind of lost and um, struggling and um, made things easier for me, um, found ways to uh, include me in uh, some recording that I wanted to do and basically was just a figure of uh, uh, a towering figure, a legendary musician who uh, just by being able to be around him uh, gave me a lot, really, really uh, was very encouraging. Um, I then moved to Sweden uh, at the invitation of some friends who I met in Paris. And um, I'd been to Sweden once before on the back end of this Soviet trip. And I loved Scandinavia. I loved Sweden when I first saw it as a 13-year-old. So when I was invited by these friends to come back, I thought, wow, great. And I, I landed in Stockholm uh, one spring, late spring. The weather was just absolutely like perfect weather. 30 degrees centigrade, you know, for a month straight. I thought this is paradise, you know. There were quite a lot of Americans around in Stockholm at that time. Uh, and I fell in with a group of musicians who uh, knew a lot about the music that really meant a lot to me. Met a guy named Bjorn Hamrin who had a record shop, Early Bird Records, who had uh, a serious collection of pre-war blues records, vinyl, and he let me tape it. I bought a Revox tape recorder and I just basically lived at his shop um, and marinated myself in, in music that um, was hard to find in other places. Um, and I, I struggled, you know, I, I did odd jobs. Um, I was once uh, somebody who worked at the post office delivering the mail on a bicycle in the snow, you know, um, had jobs in restaurants and never stopped playing, never stopped trying to find gigs and, and meet up with other musicians. I did that for about 10 years and decided it was time to try my luck in New York again. And I returned to New York. I lived there in the States, East Coast, Massachusetts, New York for about five years. And uh, ran into a, a, a folk scene in the village uh, around a club called uh, Speakeasy. It was uh, basically a, a falafel shop that had a folk club in the back. Suzanne Vega was around at that time. So what year would this have been? Mid-80s. Okay. Early to mid-80s. Um, but I, I wasn't making the kind of progress career-wise that uh, I wanted to. I ended up spending a lot of time busking uh, outside the Chase Manhattan Bank at Sheridan Square. I remember playing there once. Uh, a guy came up to me and he said, listen, man, he said, you got something. He says, all I want to say to you is, don't stop. It's going to happen for you. I don't know when. He said, just just don't stop. And it turned out it was this guy, G.E. Smith, the guitar player who used to play, wow. you know, on a TV show. Saturday Night Live. Yeah. 
So uh, that that made me feel very good, but uh, I was really struggling. So I went back to Sweden, um, struggled some more, but uh, was making a little headway. I started working with a good friend of mine who was very well known, a gospel singer named Cindy Peters. She hired me as her accompanist, uh, and I, I played a lot of churches in Sweden. I must have played, you know, hundreds and hundreds of church gigs. Um, uh, which was good for me um, in many ways, and not the least economically. And I, I had a wonderful friendship uh, with, uh, with her and um, was happy to uh, be seen, uh, even if I was an accompanist, not in my own right, but she gave me a couple of opportunities to perform and, and shine my light as, a, as an artist. And um, that was all good but it still was less than what I wanted. What would have changed things? Like at what point did, did it not become a struggle? Do you, was there, mm -hmm. is it just putting in your hours and doing your time or was, it, was there something else? There's something to that. There really is something to it. There's, I think, um, several ways to make it in the industry. One way is to have a kind of a really big hit as a young artist somehow. Um, you find yourself at the top of the game without having paid a lot of dues. You just happen to have had the right record at the right time. Mm -hmm. That's a path that I wouldn't really wish on anybody because it can be devastating to uh, have all of that attention, media attention, money, and suddenly it evaporates, as it often does. There are not that many artists who have that kind of experience who are able to maintain um, that kind of level. Adele is an interesting example of a singer who uh, had a big splash and kept going, and she's still, you mm -hmm. know, at the top of her game, and she still has a lot of, um, from what I can see, uh, a lot of fun doing what she's doing. She enjoys it. She seems to be down to earth and not too um, influenced by the crazier side of this industry. Um, so I'm, I'm happy that that can happen, but that's the exception to the rule. For sure. The other path is uh, the long and hard row, uh, where you basically just keep going, getting better and better at what you do, and slowly, 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 you accrue fans and uh, media attention, and something reaches some kind of critical mass, and all of a sudden you get a big break that you're really prepared for and you find yourself in a whole nother atmosphere, you know, at a whole nother level of the industry. Um, I've had some really wonderful experiences uh, just by sticking to what I do and slowly coming to the attention of people who are established. It could be Bonnie Raitt, it could be Taj, it could be Eric Clapton wanted me to tour with him at one point, uh, be an opening act, and I was committed to something else, I couldn't do it. <laughs> It's great. Sorry, Eric, can't do it. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, and look what happened to his career. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I, I really have no regrets. I got to say, I'm one of the few um, uh, musicians. If you if you look at the whole world population of musicians, I don't know how many can really say that they're really satisfied with what they've accomplished and where they're at. Everybody would like to have, it seems. Lots of people would like to have, artists would like to have more opportunities, more money, better pay, um, 
But uh, I think I'm in a really enviable position. From where I sit, it looks pretty you know, good. Well, good. <laughs> it's probably <laughs> it probably looks a little better from there. But uh, I really must say, I, I, I just finished making a record called The Happiest Man in the World. And uh, and I, that's that's what I can say I am. I really am happy about what's happened for me and um, the people I've met who have been incredibly encouraging. The kind of feedback that I get from audiences, um, you can't buy. Um, can I ask you, yeah. do you look back on the struggles? Because it sounds like there were many years of struggling. Mm. And when you were riding the, bi the bicycle in the snow and delivering... <laughs> And I don't know if at that point if you thought that was at the lowest or it wasn't even the lowest point, but the, mm. I presume there were low points. Yeah. Do you look back on that and how, I mean, what does that, how does that reference you to who you are today? I, I feel like it's true that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I really do. Um, there were some really low moments, uh, very frustrating moments when I felt like I deserved more and wasn't getting it. And I felt this element of bitterness, you know, creeping in. And I'm glad that that didn't last, um, because that's uh, that's the the killer. That's what will really do your artistry in, and basically um, make it impossible for you to get to where you want to go. Because that bitterness is uh, contagious. People pick up on that, and uh, bitter people are not the people, however talented they may be. And there are many incredibly talented musicians who are bitter. But it's not going to help their careers. Uh, people shy away from that. Can I ask you what, what might have turned things around when you felt that bitterness coming? I had a good... Um, I think anybody who... Um, I'll, I'll put it this way. I think if you really are dedicated and you're in it for the art, you're in it for the music, you're not just trying to be famous, I think that there's a cadre of angels who, who protect artists like that and maybe even prolong their struggling paying dues phase just to make them stronger so that when they finally get that break, and that break is basically ine inevitable. I don't think it's luck. I think there is a universal law at work that if you put in the time and you are serious about what you do and you are decent to people around you, sooner or later, you're gonna get a break. And what you do with that, that's, that's a choice. Um, will depend on where you go from there. But that big break came for me, really. Um, and there's never any definitive big break because every big break is preceded by all kinds of preparatory mm -hmm. incidents. But the, the, the dramatic breakthrough came when I was... I, was, um, I finally got involved with uh, uh, BMG, the big... Uh, music company as a writer. In Sweden, I, I was able to uh, sign on as a songwriter and they encouraged me to, they paid for me to go from Sweden to New York on occasion to write with established writers there. Wow. Um, they didn't, mind you, BMG is, was also a huge record company. Mm -hmm. They didn't sign me as an artist. They just thought, we'll invest in this guy. We'll put up some money, uh, make it possible for him to travel to New York and hook up with other writers and of course we own the publishing so if it pays off we win if it pays off he wins it was a good situation but mostly what that did was give me confidence because I felt like at least I was in the door I actually was connected to serious music industry people through this songwriting contract um, 
and that's a, an incredible boost for your your self confidence when you're actually somebody who somebody with money in the industry is investing in, whether they sign you as an artist or not. The fact that somebody was willing to to take me seriously as a songwriter was incredibly uh, um, encouraging. I wrote with uh, a guy named Wayne Cohen in New York, who told me after some meetings, he said, I, I found out there's a guy named Mike Vernon in England, who's a record producer, he's got a huge CV behind him, successful, he's starting a new label. Uh, I think we should send some of our songs to him. And we did, and we got some, some news back that they were interested in what they heard, and that the, he, Mike Vernon, and his partner, Alan Robinson, were going to put together a London Blues Festival. This is in 1996. And um, they invited me to be a part of that festival. Uh, and they were basically trying to vet me, see if they were interested in signing me as an artist, having heard tapes that they thought were interesting. So I was invited to this festival. I showed up in London. Um, on the bill on that festival was Corey Harris, Keb Moe, Magic Slim, um, some newcomers like me who were uh, a step ahead, uh, and some, some old school guys who were legends. And it was a great festival. I got in the taxi at, at Heathrow to come to the festival site with my slide guitar playing friend, uh, a Swedish uh, musician named Joran Venebrandt. Um, and we'd had some experience recording for this uh, Opus 3 audio file label. So we were, we were, um, we knew each other and we played well together. And uh, we got in the taxi and the cab driver said, do you mind if I turn on the radio? And I said, no, you know. And we were tired from the journey. And the radio was on, and all of a sudden I heard myself and Yoran, just the two of us, a track from one of these Opus 3 records, with just the two of us. And there we were in the backseat of the car. And I said, you know, I think this is going to work out, man. It was like a huge sign, you know. Um, what a great feeling that must it be. It was fabulous. It was like, and it was Paul Jones's radio program on BBC. Keb Mo was in the studio, apparently, at that time. He said, hey, who's that? You know? <laughs> Um, and uh, it kind of went on from, th from there. The next day I had a manager. One of the, the festival organizers, Mike's partner, offered his service as a manager. And the next thing I knew, um, yeah, I moved to England soon after that um, to be close to, to uh, a new team that was interested in me, you know. Um, that was great. That was just great. And I'm really happy that it happened in England. Um, it's not the first time an American artist has had a breakthrough experience in England. But to me, the newness of the environment, you know, uh, the fact that um, uh, they were interested in me, uh, the fact that it was somewhat removed from the, the real dog-eat-dog uh, -dog industry in America was comfortable for me. I, I found it, um, yeah, I found it really enjoyable. I was excited about discovering a new culture. I'd been in England, you know, once in a, in a while prior to that, but I never spent time there. So, uh, yeah, being an American, African-American artist who, who played roots music uh, uh, and who was touring in England was uh, exotic. And uh, I felt like, wow, Jimi Hendrix did this, you know? I'm doing it too, you know? <laughs> James Taylor got his start in, in England, you yeah, know. Yeah. yeah, it just felt really good, you know. Wow.
I mean, it's well deserved. And and every time I see you, and I've been fortunate to see you a number of places, a number of times, a number of places, and it's always a treat. Mm. Can I just one final question? Yeah, you've done like thirty six albums. Mm. You're constantly working on new mm. projects.、Mm. How, how do you get inspiration? Where does the inspiration come from? And because I tour so much, and the、uh, the hauling from airport to hotel to sound check. Back to hotel, back to the airport. All of that stuff creates a need for,、uh, for me anyway, a real need for some kind of、um, uh, situation where I can create music, where I can create and not、um, be caught up in all the strenuous. Logistics of getting to a gig, so being in a recording studio for me is like being on vacation. Some artists find the pressure of being in a recording situation very stressful.、Um, they feel this pressure on them to create something that's going to sell. I don't have that experience at all. I'll actually look in the phone book. Well, it used to be that way. Now you look online on your laptop, and even I can do that.、Uh, being a Kind of non-techy, but、um, often I'll come to a town, and if I'm going to be there for more than a day, like let's say I'm going to be there a day earlier or be there、um, a day after my gig,、um, I'll get online, find a, a recording studio that sounds right, call them up, say, "Hey, do you have like a couple of hours after my gig?"、Uh, I could show up in a recording studio at midnight,、um, and all of a sudden, it's quiet. I can really tune my guitar. I can really hear myself the way I want to, without having to worry about whether the system is good, whether the monitors are are decent, whether the sound guy is really on my side.、Um, I'm paying somebody to basically serve me the music that I want to hear. And if I have a new song, I'll record it there,、uh, and that might end up being the foundation of a recording that ends up on a record. I love recording on the road. I love recording in general, and it's、um, it's a wonderful counterbalance to touring. Those two aspects of of being a creative artist, performing live and recording, really work well for me, hand in hand. So I, I know I've made a lot of recordings,、um, and sometimes、um, my my partners in the record industry say, you know, man, we haven't had time to push this one yet, you know, and here you are with another one. <laughs> But the point is, is that I have to really be、uh, happy about my musical life, and if I'm feeling too uh, uh, worn out from the rigors of touring and don't have the satisfaction of hearing music, my own music, in an optimal situation as I do in a recording,、um, I get unhappy. So、um, being that prolific as a recording artist has a lot to do with my. Positivity, you know, has a lot to do with, or something to do with, of course, with me being the happiest man in the world, and、um, that's that's basically it. And fortunately, I have the kind of uh, uh, colleagues, partners. I'm not、uh, directed by them. I'm advised by them. But basically, if a record is good、um, and it doesn't cost a fortune to make. It's worth putting out for me, and it's worth putting out for the record company because sooner or later, a fan will catch up with that and spread the word. 
I might get a sync deal out of it, which means that, uh, for example, I was signing CDs once and a fan came up to me and said, congratulations, Eric, it was great to hear your song in that episode of House. And I said, what? <laughs> and the news hadn't caught up with me. I mean, it did eventually, and even the money, which was good. Um, but I didn't know about this, you know? And so somebody- they wanted to ask for permission from you, just the publisher? The publisher. Okay. And I could have been on the road, missed a, a communication or whatever. So I eventually caught up with it, but um, it was a surprise to me. And um, that kind of thing is, is wonderful. If you make a good record, um, your core fans are going to appreciate it. They don't care if you make an album a year or two, or, or you know, they're only happy to get more music if they're really on board as your fan. And I have a lot of those kind of devoted fans, happily. Um, so it tends to work out, you know. Well, yeah. You know, I've been a fan for a long time. Every time I see you, it's a real treat. I really appreciate you taking this time. Thank you very much for doing this. You're movie. welcome. It's always a pleasure. You know, people like to talk about themselves. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thank you.